Heavenly Father, we, we thank you, God, for everything that you are doing in our lives. You are worthy of every praise. You are faithful to us, even when we are not faithful, God. You, you keep your promises, Lord. And we are so thankful, Lord, and we, we, we praise you, as the song says. When the sun goes up, when it goes down, Lord, we, we will continue to praise you. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for bringing every single one here and giving them life and breath and safety, God. We are so thankful for what you're doing. We're praying this in your name. Amen and amen. God bless you all. Feel free to take a seat. I want to say thank you to everyone who's here. Thank you all for coming. And if you're connecting online, thank you for connecting. Uh, We really appreciate seeing you here. It means a lot. And God is doing great things with Encounter Church. If you have a child and you would like to uh, go to uh, the children's church, uh, Olga Arroyo, my mom, Sister Arroyo, she's going to be available in the middle and she'll be taking uh, you children downstairs to have some fun. She has some goodies ready. Uh, So I'm so excited to continue this series with all of you. We are talking about the kingdom. Last time we met, we we discovered, we saw that Israel was not in such a good shape. Um, But today we're going to hear some good news, some good stuff. Uh, We're going to talk about the king's heralds, the king's heralds. And if you would like uh, to take a seat, you're more than welcome to do that. There's also notes in the back if you want to follow along with that. Uh, Feel free to grab that. Um, But feel free to take a seat. Uh, We'll get into the scripture a little later, but I want to give you guys a small intro to what we will be talking about today. There were people who spoke on the king's behalf. They are probably known or best known as heralds. God had heralds. They are called prophets. These heralds would proclaim the promises, hopes, and judgments of God. God used these prophets to bring hope to the nation of Israel. Since, remember last time, Israel, when we read, they were, they were going through a rough time. They were captured by Babylonian, by Babel. And before that, they were, uh, they were captured by Assyria. They, they were going through a lot of sin. They were in a rough spot. The Israelites had lost hope. They lost hope in the promises God had made In the garden, to Eve, to Adam. They lost hope in the promises that were made to Noah, to Abraham, to David. They lost hope about the promises about this king who was supposed to come, this seed of a woman. They lost hope. What what would God's prophets, God's heralds, say to these people, these Israelites who were in despair, who were in a state of tohu vavohu, in the state of chaos. What would God's people say to this, these, these Israelites who were in despair? What would they say? Well, there are a lot of heralds that we could focus on. Today we will talk about two. Isaiah 
And at the end, we will briefly talk about Daniel. In Isaiah, there, there's a theme, a theme that, that, that says this, that God is the king who governs. According to Patrick Schreiner, Isaiah teaches that one day, God will send a future king from the line of David. And that represents power. Remember early on in the first session that we had, the first sermon, sermon talk, that, talk that we had about the kingdom. We said that the kingdom was God's power over God's people and God's land. In Isaiah, we see these three elements within the book. God will send a future king who has power. He will lead Israel, God's people, in obedience to the covenant. And this blessing will go to the whole world. There's a sense that it, is, that it involves place. We will see that, Israel, that Isaiah is a book of hope. And we can get hope. We can see hope within this book by looking at three images of Isaiah, of this book that we find within the Bible, who's a prophet. Isaiah is a prophet, a herald, somebody who speaks on God's behalf. And here are three images. Isaiah 1 through 39 gives us an image of the Davidic ruler, of this king who comes from David. In Isaiah 40 to 55, we read about the servant of the Lord. And then in Isaiah 56 to 66, we hear about the spirit-anointed messenger of God. Let's open up our Bibles to Isaiah 6. Let's start off our study and look at what Isaiah had to say about the kingdom and what he said to the nation of Israel, who, remember, they were in a tohu vavohu state. They were in a chaotic state. They were sinning. They were in a downward, uh, downward spiral. Isaiah 6, 1, this is a... Scene that maybe we all know, maybe we've heard about it, especially if we spent some time within church. It says this, Isaiah 6, 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. In this chapter, we begin by lifting up our eyes to see the Lord high and exalted. Isaiah sees Yahweh, the God who revealed himself to Moses. Isaiah sees God, the creator of heaven and earth. He sees the king of kings, and he sees him seated on his throne. No one has seen God, but sometimes God makes himself visible. He goes through a sense, through a form of condescension. By making himself visible on a throne, by making him visible uh, that he's sitting on a throne, God is conveying royal power. Jerome, the Bible translator, he was the one who translated the, the Old and New Testament into the Latin Vulgate, and it was the main Bible that the church used for about 1,500 years. Uh, he wrote this about God sitting on the throne. We have talked about standing. We have talked about walking. Let us talk about sitting. Whenever God is represented as seated, the portrayal takes one of two forms. Either he appears as the ruler or as the judge. 
if he is like a king, one sees him as Isaiah does. I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. There he is presented as the sovereign king. God is king and he is high and exalted. While God is present in this world, he is beyond this world. He is transcendent. The train of his robe, if we just focus on his, the train of his robe, how long his robe is, it, we would see that it fills the entire temple, the entire, if we use our paradigms, our ways of understanding, the, the entire church. And it reveals the length of God's majesty. Who in this world has, has, a, has a robe, a, the train of their robe fills the entire temple? No one. God's majesty, however, does fill up the entire temple because his majesty is otherworldly. It is holy. Here's a picture of Princess Diana's train of her robe. And it, it was pretty long. It was 25 feet long. That, that is long. And the long train of her robe represented the degree of her majesty. And it's quite impressive. Her robe is really impressive. But it still did not fill up the church. The train of God's robe filled the entire temple. Because God's majesty is just that majestic. The majesty of God. And if you have your notes, write, the, write this in transcends the majesty of any earthly king or queen. If we just look at the robe, the train of the robe, it shows that. Now let's go to Isaiah 9.2. Isaiah 9.2 says this, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has drawn and we're, we're going to spend some time in chapter 9. Uh, there's another passage in chapter 9 that I want us to spend some time with. But for right now, this passage, 9-2, tells us there are people who are walking in darkness, but they have seen a great light. They have been in a place of deep darkness, but light has dawned. They have lived out their lives hidden from the face of God and have experienced troubles that are like death-like troubles, death-like shadows. But there is light. Even though they found themselves in darkness and confusion and chaos, there is light. And maybe we could relate we find ourselves in a place of despair, of darkness, but let me remind you that there is light. In a few verses later, we see what this light is. This light is, in the same chapter, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, just a couple verses lower, tells us a very popular verse. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty 
God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Verse 7, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This light that we were talking about that had dawned on this people that we talked about in the previous verses, it came from a child, a son, who was given for us. He is human and royal. Upon his shoulders will be order, will be the government and the burden of the people. This child king will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, because of his beautiful relationship with discipline and care over his subjects. This child will be called Everlasting Father. And the society this child creates will be so peaceful that he will be called Prince of Peace, Prince of Shalom. The Prince of Peace will sit upon the throne of David and rule over David's kingdom. Justice and righteousness are pillars of this child's rule. And God is zealous. He he has this deep passion to establish the kingdom of peace, the kingdom of shalom through this child. Every Christmas, we wonder about the birth of this child king. I like what Ephraim wrote on this. He was an early Christian, and he wrote this. Today was born the child, and his name was called Wonderful. For I wonder it is that God should reveal himself as a baby. It's crazy to think that this This infinite God would make himself into a baby. And that this beautiful kingdom would come from a child. This idea of starting small, small like a baby, is present in the next passage that we will look at. In this case, it's no longer a baby, but it's a shoot. It's like a sapling, a small plant Uh, Or maybe a small thing that's going to eventually become into a tree or something big. Go to Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. And his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With Justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. 
the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. Verse 7. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. And the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as, for, as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nation will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. The king, also known as the Messiah, will come anointed with the Spirit. He will have the Spirit of the Lord, of wisdom and understanding, he, counsel and might, and he will have the knowledge and fear of God. He will come from Jesse. Jesse, he is the father of David. In other words, this one who comes from Jesse, he is a, a Davidite. He is one who comes from David, from the line of Judah, from the one that God had promised to, that there will be an offspring coming who would establish a kingdom. He will be like a shoot, a sapling, something that appears small but grows into something big. He will love spending time with God. The king will bring peace through the guidance of the spirit and righteous judgment. Verses 6 through 9, these images of animals being peaceful. This should remind us of the Garden of Eden. This new king brings with him a kingdom that is similar to the order, to the shalom, to the peace of Genesis 1. Predators and prey live together. A child, a little child, could both lead a calf and a lion. Humans are again having authority over the animals instead of serp the serpent having authority over the humans. In fact, the serpent will no longer hurt humans, even if a child puts her hand in the serpent's nest, no harm would take place. With this king, we see a beautiful picture that is similar to the picture of Eden or even better than Eden's picture. And this brings hope. Remember, who was Isaiah talking to? To this nation that was just going through a lot of things, rough things. They're, they were in despair. They were going through pain. And yet God was using this herald, this prophet, to show a picture not a picture of tohu vavohu, this picture of chaos, no, but to paint this picture of shalom, of peace. I want us to now go to Isaiah 33, 22. It says this. This verse is pretty, pretty nice. I like this verse. It's pretty straightforward. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is 
our king. It is he who will save us. Who, who is the king? Is it the child that we talked about not that long ago? Is it the shoot from the, the stump of, of, of Jesse? Is it the one who comes from David? It is the Lord God. Yahweh is our king. God is our king. Yahweh is our judge, as it says in the scripture. He is the only righteous judge, unlike the judges that we saw in the book of Judges with Samson and Gideon. He is our lawgiver. He is better than Moses and his law. And he is our king. He is better than David. And he is the one who will save us. He will make us part of his redemption story. The kingship of God is greater than all the earthly kings. We should submit ourselves to the real king. This king not only brings perfect judgment, but brings comfort. Isaiah 40, 1 through 2 says this. Comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been, been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God cares about your suffering, just as he cared for the suffering of the Israelites. God wants his people to be comforted. We should submit ourselves to the real king. This king not only brings perfect judgment, but he brings comfort. He wants you to be comforted. He wants you to feel his comfort. And we should submit to him. This king not only brings perfect judgment, but he also, uh, he wants us, to, it wants us to know that there will be a tender speech towards us, towards Jerusalem. In this case, it was Jerusalem, the capital of his people. God's people, in this case, they had worked enough. And God wants his people to know that their sins have been dealt with. Jerusalem had already suffered enough. Speaking about suffering, let's look at the suffering servant of Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 1 through 12. This is a very, very good portion of scripture. It says this. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. 
a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we consider to him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned our, to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering to sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Here, we see the suffering servant. He comes like a shoot, like a small sapling. There's nothing about his appearance that causes us to think about beauty or majesty or to desire him. In fact, this servant was despised and rejected. He was a man of suffering. He knew what it meant to, to be in deep, agonizing pain. Why did he feel such deep pain? The reason that he felt this was that he was a man of suffering. He, he was a man of suffering because he took up 
our pain and our suffering. We thought, oh God, God is just mad at him. But in reality, the suffering servant was dealing with our pains and transgressions. The punishment that he experienced brings us shalom, brings us peace. His wounds brings us healing. We had messed up. We were like sheep. We left our shepherd, our God, starting in Genesis. All of humanity had left God. But the suffering servant absorbed all of our mistakes because the Lord had laid on him our iniquities. According to the great church historian who recorded much that had occurred in the first three centuries, Eusebius of Caesarea, he said this, alone did he assume the penalties of our wicked deeds. He took our wicked deeds alone, the suffering, suffering servant. Not when we were half dead. No, he took all of our wicked deeds even when we were already altogether foul and stinking in tombs and graves. He did not only take up upon himself our nastiness when we had some stuff together. Or like, God, you know, take away our sins, put it on this suffering servant. I've got this part, I just need help with this. Yes, he could take it away then, but also when you have nothing together... He takes our sin, our foul and stinking sin, when we are rotting in our sin, stinking like a corpse in a grave. He took our sins. When afflicted, the servant was like a lamb, silent. He had done no violence, but suffered as if he did. The sacrificial suffering of the servant was God's will. Because after the life offering for sin, the offering that the servant gave, the life that he gave, the offspring of the suffering servant would prosper. There will be light. There will be light. This servant will, be, will, will see life, even though he suffered tremendously. The suffering servant will receive a great portion because of his great sacrifice. And he would divide his spoils, what he receives with his people. And as Ambrose said, he was a, a, a bishop within uh, Milad in Spain. Uh, early on, like in the 400s, 300s. He said this, from being great, he became lesser. And from being lesser, he became great. The suffering servant was great. He was God's anointed. But then he appeared as a person who was being judged by God. He became lesser. But after giving up his life, the suffering servant became the greatest. By bearing pain, sickness, and affliction, the suffering servant brings peace and healing to all the nations. Let's look at what this looks like. Peace and healing on the, to all the nations. What does that look like? Isaiah 65, 17 to 25 tells us what that kingdom looks like. 17 says, 
Isaiah 65, verse 17. It's towards the end of the book. And it says this. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long, long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my mountain, my holy mountain, says the Lord. There will be a time when everything sad will be undone. Yes, every sad thing will be undone. Tim Keller, he's a famous pastor from New York, he cites the Lord of the Rings uh, to show that everything will be restored. Just after the climax of the trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, Sam Gamgee discovers that his friend Gandalf was not dead, as he thought, but alive. Gamgee cries, he cries, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? The answer of Christianity to that question is yes. Everything sad is going to come untrue. And it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. We saw with Isaiah that what Isaiah thought, he, he believed that something greater will happen for this world, even though he was living in a time of tor- turmoil. He knew that God was going to create a new heaven and a new earth. That there will be no more crying, death, oppressive governments, or conflict in this new earth. The former things are no more. There's a beautiful relationship between God and his people. Since God will delight in them. This is all possible Because of the Davidic servant, the Davidic servant messenger, there is 
joy. There is joy. With the original recipients of this book, the first audience, there was a lot of weeping because of the looming conquest of the Assyrians and later the Babylonians. But God was still promising a time of no more weeping. There will be harmony with things that would typically kill each other. Gregory of Elvira looks at this scene and is reminded of Eden, the former shape of the earth. He says this, The earth will freely give its produce, and all evil, evil will be removed, just as Isaiah said. For God has refashioned such a world and his kingdom, just as it had been made in the beginning before the first made humans, human being ruined it. Who after he had disobeyed the word of God, all things were spoiled and ruined and cursed by God's word. The earth will be cursed in your works. The former shape of this world, the shalom world that we saw in Genesis 1, will become the kingdom of the saints and the liberation of the creatures. In Isaiah... God is the king. He is sitting on the throne. But there is also a child who is the almighty God. And the shoot of David. This king is majestic and brings light to his people. Even those who are in darkness. He also brings peace and comfort. There is also a suffering servant. He suffers for his people. He takes upon himself the mistakes of his people. As a result, there comes a new heaven and a new earth where things are like Eden, peaceful, maybe even better than Eden. And as we close, I, I, I want to look at another prophet in just one verse from the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is apocalyptic. That means that it, it is unveiling, uh, revealing, unveiling God's truth. In Daniel, we see kingdoms like the kingdom of the Babylonians and the Persians rise and fall. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 to 14, it says this. We find an interesting vision. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me, was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. So here's a man, one like a son of man. And he's coming with clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days. And the ancient of days was another title that uh, the ancient Near East used to talk about God. So there's this human one going to the ancient of days to God and was led into his presence, verse 14. He was given, the, the Son of Man, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This verse has been the subject of much research from different scholars and from different seminary students, including myself. We see here clouds 
some, which should remind us of the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, not the Sermon on the Mount, the Mount, Mount Sinai. Uh, when Moses went up and there were clouds when he was meeting with God. Something heavenly is taking place. The clouds, the clouds indicate that. Something involving God. And there is this one who looks like a son of man. In other words, there is this human one. This human one approaches the ancient of days, approaches God. The son of man receives authority and establishes God's kingdom. In the previous verses, there are beasts that represent evil kingdoms like Babylon, like Rome, like Persia. But now we see a human one receiving the kingdom of God. The kingdom of the human one is everlasting. And the human one, this human one, is receiving worship. There is one who looks like a human one, who is actually human, who goes to God, establishes the kingdom, destroys the evil kingdoms, and receives worship. This human one is Jesus Christ. He regularly referred to himself as the son of man, as the human one. And this human one, Jesus, is the one who has received all authority from heaven. He is the one who sat on the throne in Isaiah 6. He is the light, the child we saw in Isaiah 9. He is the one who has the innocence of a child. Jesus is the one who carries power on his shoulders. But the power appears as a cross. He carried his power on his shoulders when he carried the cross on his shoulders. He is the suffering servant. As Augustine said, Christ's deformity is what gives form to you. If he had been unwilling to be deformed, you would never have got back the form you lost. So he hung on the cross, deformed, but his deformity was our beauty. He gave up his beauty so that we could be beautiful. Because Jesus died on the cross, we live today not as corpses within a grave, but we live alive, beautiful. I close, I want us to close with this prayer um, of Melto of Sardis. And I think it's a good reflection of Jesus. With everything that we've read, sometimes it doesn't seem like Jesus is present. But he is present. Maybe not immediately, but when we look at the overarching story, he is present. And uh, however you want to listen, if you want to look up in the screen, if you want to close your eyes, or if you just... Uh, listen, however you want to listen, just listen to the words of Melto. Uh, I, think, I think these words are very, just uh, we should meditate on these words and they could help us with our relationship 
with God. He says this. This is the one who comes from heaven onto the earth for the suffering one. And wraps himself in the suffering one through a virgin womb. And comes as a man. He accepted the suffering of the suffering one. Through suffering in a body that could suffer. And set free the flesh from suffering. Through the spirit that cannot die. He slew the manslayer death. He is the one led like a lamb. And slaughtered like a sheep. He ransomed us from the worship of the world, as from the land of Egypt. And he set us free from slavery of the devil, as from the hands of Pharaoh. And sealed our souls with his own spirit, and the members of our body with his blood. This is the one who clad death in shame. And as Moses did to Pharaoh, made the devil Grieve. This is the one who struck down lawlessness and made injustice childless, as Moses did to Egypt. This is the Pascha, which is Passover, of our salvation. This is the one who in many people endured many things. This is the one who was murdered in Abel, tied up in Isaac, ex- exiled in Jacob. Sold in Joseph, exposed in Moses, slaughtered in the Lamb. Hunted in David, dishonored in the prophets. This is the one made flesh and a virgin. Who was hanged on a tree. Who was buried in the earth. Who was raised from the dead who was exalted to the heights of heaven. This is the lamb slain. This is the speechless lamb. This is the one born of Mary, the fair you. This is the one taken from the flock and led to slaughter, who was sacrificed in the evening and buried at night, who was not broken on the tree who was not undone in the earth, who rose from the dead and resurrected humankind from the grave below. As we close and as the worship team gets ready, the recipients of Isaiah's and Daniel's announcements, these heralds, they were awaiting something. They were awaiting a human a child, God, the king. The Israelites had different views on how this would be fulfilled. An immediate king, maybe. Maybe a powerful nation. Maybe one who will come, who is God's representative. We know how this would be fulfilled. We know who the king is. This king is Jesus. Death could not keep Jesus down because he must reign as a living being. Today, we can and we will worship him as our king. If we could all stand as we get ready to worship, and I will pray. 
If you ever want to talk more about this, feel free to talk to me or any of the leaders, and we're more than willing to uh, talk to you. Maybe send us a, um, a message if you're interested in getting more information and getting plugged in. But let us pray and worship our King. Isaiah brought hope to the nation of Israel, brought hope talking about the future. And I believe that the same words of Isaiah that brought hope to Israel can bring us hope today and maybe adjust our mindset on who Jesus is. Let us pray. Jesus Christ, thank you for moving the life of of Isaiah to include everything that he included hundreds of years before you would even come to the scene. But Lord, we know that you are king and you are a beautiful, majestic king. Yes, maybe humanly speaking, you looked like you were despised. It looked like you were stricken by God, but little did we know that you were just suffering for our sake. You took upon yourself our iniquities, our wrongdoing, so that we could experience life and life abundantly. I pray, God, that everyone here may recognize that, Jesus, that you have brought this kingdom, a beautiful kingdom, and while it's not fully here, Lord, we are called to establish this beautiful kingdom. This world maybe is in a similar place as Israel was back in the day. Maybe there's a lot of chaos, and I'm sure we could diagnose that easily with everything that's taking place in 2020. A lot of tohu vavohu. But let us remember that there is a peaceful shalom kingdom, a kingdom of peace that is coming because, Jesus, you are the prince of peace. You are the prince of shalom. And you will put into place everything, everything in this world. Will everything evil become undone? Everything sad? Yes. Yes, it will. And let us be reminded of that as we worship you today in song. In Jesus' name, amen.